0: purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind.
1: But we've also seen uh, challenges, as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid
0: in the midst of this tempest.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation.
1: 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens
0: from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here.
2: Hello, I'm Ben, and this is von. In the 2014 revision of the Norwegian Constitution, legislators defined Article 112 as a key constitutionally enshrined human right, Article 112 states, Every person has the right to an environment that is conducive to health and to a natural environment whose productivity and diversity are maintained. Natural resources shall be managed on the basis of comprehensive long-term considerations, which will safeguard this right for future generations as well. The authorities shall take measures for the implementation of these principles. Proponents of environmental rights argue that the language of Article 112 was specifically strengthened to ensure the rights of current and future generations to a healthy and sustainable environment, and to impose obligations on the state to act to uphold them. In June 2016, the Norwegian government issued 10 petroleum extraction licenses in the Arctic Barents Sea for both Norway's state-owned oil company, Statoil, and companies representing other developed nations from around the world. The production licenses enlarged the permitted sovereign extraction zone for the first time in more than 20 years, and into a highly sensitive area lacking disaster response infrastructure. Ten days later, Norway became the first developed nation in the world to ratify the Paris Agreement. With its adoption, 195 signatory nations came together to strengthen the global response to address climate change by aiming to keep global temperature rise this century to below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and by strengthening the ability of developing nations to deal with the impacts of climate change. In response to the drilling licensing decision, Greenpeace and a coalition of environmental and youth groups launched an unprecedented legal challenge against the Norwegian government Greenpeace has principally argued that the government's decision transgresses its own international climate obligations under the Paris Agreement and Norway's own constitutional guarantee for consideration of future generations in natural resource management.
1: Hi, I am Trulske Lovsson, head of Greenpeace here in Norway, and uh, we have just been through uh, Norway's first uh, climate lawsuit where we took the Norwegian state to court for uh, licensing new oil fields in the Arctic. We have been struggling against the Norwegian expansion of the oil sector for many years, and used all all possible means uh, together and with other organizations of uh, political lobby, documentation of the vulnerable areas, and uh, pointing out over and over again that the world has found too much fossil fuel, so it's no point to continue to look for more. When the the Parliament revised our constitution, especially the human rights sections, in uh, 2014. It was part of a, of a big process to, to, uh, to uh, refurbish the constitution. They also upgraded upgraded the environmental paragraph, which had been a sort of a sleeping paragraph since it was uh, added to the constitution in 92. Uh, so they sharpened it and uh, and, and said that the, that that it was the state's responsibility to ensure these principles, uh, which then put a clear duty on the state. And it was also agreed by by uh, by the politicians in parliament at the time that they wanted this paragraph to be something that could be used in courts if necessary. So we then, we celebrated that change in the environmental movement because it was good to see that we have now sort of a stronger environmental backing in the constitution. And when, when Norway then, continued to license oil and gas, uh, even in areas that had never before been opened, uh, even closer to the ice edge than uh, than ever before. Even after signing the Paris Agreement, we we decided that it was time to, to see if this new paragraph could be used to stop this expansion.
2: The case between Greenpeace and the government of Norway is but one example of an increasing number of climate change litigations currently being pursued around the world. And many have argued that since the 1990s, the human rights, environmental rights interrelationship has been an area of growing ethical concern due to the emergence of new international norms, an embrace of environmental responsibilities, and the expansion of social justice. Explicit environmental rights are recognized in four binding international agreements, and a 2010 study found that constitutional protection of environmental rights is incorporated into 140 national constitutions, including 86 that explicitly recognize the right to a healthy environment. But how did we come to this point? How did it come to be that those seeking redress for environmental transgressions increasingly assert arguments based on human rights and increasingly view courts as the forum for doing so? And what are the unique challenges facing climate litigation as a new avenue for challenging decisions that may have damaging environmental effects? In the area of climate change policy, National actors are part of both a national and global administration, simultaneously responsible for implementing international environmental law within their own borders in pursuit of collective objectives, while recognizing that their sovereign decisions are of concern to governments and citizens of other states. Decisions taken by national authorities with negative impacts on the environment in one country have and will continue to cause drastic changes to the lives of people far from where a decision is taken. And in the face of climate issues with an increasingly broad spatial and temporal scope, as we are witnessing more and more of, traditional environmental law has arguably struggled to remain effective in its intended aims.
3: Hello my name is Professor Benjamin Richardson. I'm a academic at the University of Tasmania uh, Faculty of Law and my main research specialty is uh, the financial sector and environmental law. Well environmental law initially when I say initially I mean environmental law has been around for a long time but modern environmental law was sort of from the mid 60s onwards and initially it it had a lot of success it was able to pick the low-hanging fruit a lot of success stories that came in that first wave of environmental law particularly for public health issues um, because where people's direct health is at stake, often that, that would be give it political clout to change. The problem is that there's a new generation of environmental problems that those tools are not so effective at dealing with. The, the tools work well when you've got problems that are quite spatially and temporally discrete, but the problem is the new generation of environmental law issues transcend that. There are things like plastic debris in the oceans, which is the result of uh, not one company, but 7 billion-plus people. Uh, climate change is another one of these ubiquitous problems that just transcends time and space, that, that transcends the jurisdiction of any particular uh, government and, and defies methods of international cooperation to deal with. The, the, to, the tools that worked quite well initially, you know, don't log this area, don't mine it, let's create a national park, have come up with their limits of, of efficacy and, and this new generation of spatially... In, temporarily expansive problems we don't have real answers to yet. We may never do.
2: The functional limitations of traditional environmental law can be witnessed within the Arctic environmental regulatory regime as well. The principal Arctic environmental legal regime is the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy, or AEPS, administered through the Arctic Council comprised of Arctic coastal states as a high intergovernmental forum. This strategy has received heavy criticism from environmental advocates and legal scholars alike. While the Arctic Council does conduct studies on the effects of climate change in the Arctic and has institutionalized environmental protection aims, resource exploration in the Arctic remains an integral component of the Council's mission through their Sustainable Development Permanent Working Group, which directly contradicts its effectiveness as an advocate for the protection of the Arctic environment. It has also been argued that the continued exploration and commerce interests of the Arctic Council states are diametrically opposed to international obligations they've set under climate treaties. Some improvements in the Arctic Council's environmental regime have been witnessed in the last decade. Since 2011, the Council has begun to adopt legally binding agreements concerning the environment, suggesting it is shifting from a policy-shaping body to a decision-making body. However, there remain serious impediments to the protection of the Arctic environment, given that the AEPs and any environmental goals relies entirely on the implementation by Arctic states at the domestic level.
0: So, uh, my name is Antje Neumann and I studied law. I'm a PhD researcher uh, at Tilburg University and I have these research interests towards indigenous peoples. The correlation between environmental legal protection on the one hand and human rights protection indigenous people rights protection and the interrelation of them i wouldn't say that uh, international environmental law has failed towards the arctic so there is i think much positive development in the um, uh, production of law or the evolution development of law that is facing arctic environmental problems but uh, still the problem of implementation domestic implementation is a serious one in, in,
2: in Concerns about the effectiveness of environmental protection in the Arctic also extends beyond simply the domestic implementation by Arctic states themselves to encompass precisely who is being excluded from the process of crafting them, as well as which interests ought to be better reflected within them.
0: Uh, it's right that often the the whole emphasis on sustainable development is often also given a priority to this development, to the industry. And it's unproportional con- uh, compared with uh, yeah, issues of indigenous peoples, right? Uh, communities, is not only uh, the Arctic is home of uh, almost one million. In indigenous people, but four million inhabitants. So, giving them a voice is—they are not well represented, as well as environmental issues, the really burning environmental issues. You cannot deal with Arctic political issues, geopolitical issues, development issues, without taking into account the human dimension of the Arctic. Climate change is not only an issue for them that they observe. From a distance, it's an issue they affected personally in their survival.
2: Facing an increasing urgency to address climate change issues, combined with an environmental law paradigm that is unsuited to modern challenges and the exclusion of relevant voices from the debate, environmental advocates appear to be pursuing new avenues for justice. These include the use of national courts to hold governments accountable for their domestic and international climate obligations, and the increasingly prevalent framing of environmental rights as human rights in such litigation. For example, a Dutch court in the Urgenda case recently held the state liable for its greenhouse gas emissions reduction policy that fell below its duty of care to protect Dutch citizens against the harmful effects of climate change.
3: There's been a significant shift over the last few decades in which I think environmental law activists are realising that other fields of law, uh, other fields of governance can be fruitful avenues for challenging environmentally deleterious development. In general in any jurisdiction what you'd be looking for for that to have some traction is evidence that the state in question has committed to international obligations. That are mindful of you know the global citizen and the global impact, but at the end of the day, they have traction in the domestic legal system because the state is committed to it. So we have this fantastic period of innovation in environmental law where we're going beyond the traditional tools of you know challenging a pollution license or um, a land use planning permit through traditional courts using judicial review or merits based appeals, and so this is the frontier um, uh, because those other avenues have have, have become roadblocks, there's only so far you can go with them.
0: That courts uh, can play a very important role also to face uh, these kind of questions for the first time, because all of most of the agreements we are talking about, they are rather recent in terms of uh, legal binding uh, agreement. And you have to be pioneers also as uh, judges uh, to face these kinds of questions for the first time. But there is also, on the other hand, a urgent need. Uh, for judges to deal with these questions and not to hesitate. I think raising of these kind of questions is exactly the way we as an international community, it's our obligation. And we should use all possibilities to raise these kind of questions
2: climate change litigation could be a step towards imposing a legal requirement of states to consider typically excluded voices in decision-making as well as establishing national courts as the adjudicators of environmental rights disputes over impacts that may manifest both within and beyond sovereign borders Of course, this may be easier said than done. The number of unsuccessful climate litigation cases pursued in domestic courts provides evidence for the fact that challenging sovereign decisions of national governments on the basis of environmental transgressions is an awkward concept for domestic courts to grapple with. Among national governments, there has been a strong resistance to judicial intervention to enforce environmental obligations along a number of arguments based on executive authority and national sovereignty. Such actions could also be viewed as an inherently undemocratic one by domestic courts to the extent that they constrain governments from carrying out the preferences of the democratic majority that elected them. To evaluate and better understand these inherent challenges of the increasing number of climate litigation cases, we followed closely the development of the Norwegian case, Greenpeace v. Ministry of Petroleum and Energy of Norway, or popularly referred to as The People vs. Arctic Oil. We were thrilled to be able to speak with the plaintiffs in the case as the case progressed through the Norwegian court system. And it is important to note at the outset that multiple requests for comment from the Government of Norway, or its various representatives on this case, went unanswered, so we will be relying on their public submissions to the court to comment on their views. Greenpeace's case has gained widespread interest due to it being the first time a challenge has been pursued on the basis of the Constitution Article 112 that enshrines environmental rights for current and future generations. The summary claim of Greenpeace is that Article 112 entails three consequences, all of which the licensing decision transgresses. It establishes an absolute limitation on the risk the natural environment can be exposed to. It affords a substantive right to a healthy and diverse environment to both current and future generations. And it extends a procedural right to citizens to be considered and informed when a decision produces negative environmental impacts or otherwise infringes their afforded rights.
1: The, the main claim is that we want to invalidate the 10 licenses that was awarded in the north of the Bering Sea. And we're using both climate change arguments. That's kind of this is fossil fuels that the world cannot afford to burn. And we're using environmental vulnerability arguments. These licenses have been given in areas that they shouldn't have given licenses at all. And we are challenging them on uh, bad management. That That's sort of the process of handling or handing them out has been incomplete and based on insufficient facts and analysis. Mm -hmm. In general, I I totally agree that environmental policies and decisions and balancing should ideally not happen in the courts. But the point is that sometimes we need the courts to separate between long-term decisions that politicians and parliaments has made and put into law, and short-term decisions that politicians take when they don't really remember uh, their overall task. And I think there are no good reasons to keep environmental issues outside the courts when all other
2: issues are sometimes treated and decided upon in courts. The case was heard at the first instance before the Oslo District Court in October 2017. Perhaps surprisingly, given the explicit language of Article 112 and the documented legislative intent of its drafters to enshrine individual rights to a healthy environment, the government of Norway forcefully argued against viewing Article 112 as encoding any concrete rights for individuals to claim in a legal context. From submissions and arguments before the court, it is clear that the parties strongly disagree as to how Article 112 should be interpreted, and to what extent the state has a duty to uphold any rights that may be viewed to be enshrined within it.
1: During the court case, it was even more exciting uh, to watch the play because I assume that that would be the main discussion. So is it big enough or is it not big enough for the courts to intervene in? Uh, While the state general attorney actually argued that there were no rights that could be upheld by a court. And even if there were some rights, The state's duty was only to have some sort of environmental policies, regardless of the effect and impact of those policies. So I think kind of that positioning and that small and narrow interpretation of this legal paragraph in our constitution made this court case even more necessary, because, of course, if we have an environmental paragraph in the constitution that is going to be interpreted or might have been interpreted by the state as completely meaningless for 25 years. Of course, that explains why (laughs) we have such struggles with the environment. Our interpretation that everyone has the right to a good environment is a proper right and that the state has a duty to secure those rights means both that they have to have good environmental policies and principles, and that there might come situations where the the state is is basically limited from saying yes to things with big negative environmental impacts. That interpretation has a a quite solid backing also in the sort of the pre-works of the paragraph. And it was a clear part of the discussion in Parliament when the paragraph was adopted, that the intention was that it could be used in court to enforce environmental rights. Uh, obviously, the paragraph didn't say anything about where the limits, exactly sort of what is a healthy environment. Uh, but of course, when that has not been said, it's it's up to the courts to, uh, to interpret the thresholds, which I think is why it is really, really important to have this discussion. Um, and I think kind of uh, handing out new oil licenses for fossil fuels that we cannot afford to burn is a big decision with a big environmental impact that clearly sort of is above the threshold. I think it's uh, quite clear that if we have such a paragraph, which exists in in more than 100 constitutions all over the world, uh, they need to have effective limitations of what type of or how negative impact on the environment politicians
2: have the right to decide. The government of Norway also strongly pursued an economic case for why oil drilling licenses should not be invalidated. Doing so, they argue, would be harmful to the long-term well-being of the state, would damage the economy, would cost many Norwegians employed in the petroleum industry their jobs, and that ultimately environmental regulation would be better accomplished via taxes and provisions passed through Parliament. Given the strong reliance of the social welfare state apparatus of Norway on sustained petroleum revenues, serious concerns remain on behalf of the government as to whether limiting the Norwegian petroleum industry would be prudent or in the interest of the common good. But of course, critics of this view argue Norway's wealth precisely obliges it to take the lead in tackling environmental issues.
1: As part of our evidence, we submitted an independent economic analysis which showed that the economic analysis done by the state was extremely bad. It was full of failures and mistakes. Uh, well, they had been doing some serious double counting of billions, they had also forgotten to, to, um, to do a proper discounting of future income and costs, which completely distorted the economic benefits picture. Uh, when well, we pointed that out, Uh, The response from the state was that, well, you know, economics is not so important. But when we are challenging the entire package, they are generically responding with uh, that stopping licensing is a threat against the Norwegian economy. Uh, So they're using economic arguments when it fits. But in this case, they actually didn't have the numbers to back their claims up. I think kind of first of all, it's clear that, that Norway has become very wealthy because of oil and gas extraction. Uh, that gives us, in my mind, an even stronger moral responsibility to help tackle the problem. We need to reduce demand for fossil fuels and oil fields in the Barents Sea that is already licensed now, they might get into production in 2030, which is at the time where the, oil, the global oil demand needs to be on a very steep curve downwards. So it's not even a guarantee that that new licensing of oil and gas now is ever going to be profitable. And it's no reason to believe that that new fields will be profitable. So even from an economic welfare state perspective, it is very doubtful whether it makes sense to continue to look for oil and gas in the Barents Sea. And from a moral climate perspective, it's absolutely crazy.
2: The Oslo District Court delivered its verdict in January of this year, ruling against Greenpeace and its co-claimants. The court ultimately accepted the government's licensing decision and ordered Greenpeace to pay the state's legal costs. In its ruling, the court dismissed the view of Greenpeace that Norway should be responsible for greenhouse gas emissions resulting from oil and gas exported to other nations, rather than just from the exploration and drilling within Norwegian territory. In dismissing Greenpeace's claim, the court relied on a number of arguments that are common to other climate litigation where the state's liability was dismissed. Namely, that in fulfilling the rights of citizens under Article 112, Norway cannot be held responsible for emissions occurring outside of its territory from exported petroleum products, and that Norway's total contribution to the global emissions is comparatively limited. These arguments, the court felt, lowered the risks of continued drilling in the Arctic, and allowed them to conclude that Norway had not violated any rights under Article 112. The court also appeared to endorse the government's view that parliament, and not the court's, is the most suitable place for reviewing whether the government is fulfilling any duty it may have to its citizens by way of climate obligations.
1: Oh, well, when we uh, had the court case, it felt like the, the process went so incredibly well, and that the understanding of the judge was also on a, on a quite high level. Although I knew that the likelihood of winning was very low, um but still existing i had this stomach feeling that actually we could win uh, so it was a big disappointment and, and we, we had to do some, some serious reading of the judgment to understand where the judge basically took the wrong road uh, which was basically on the element of uh,
2: responsibility
1: for exported emissions
2: But all might not be lost for Greenpeace and environmental activists in Norway. Encouragingly, the Oslo court was clear in its interpretation that Article 112 does encode an enforceable individual right, accepting the bulk of the arguments put forth by Greenpeace, and stating that, quote, Article 112 is a rights provision, which can mean that decisions like the one at issue can be invalidated. And in their view, where the extracted resources are burned is irrelevant. As long as the consequences of the oil extracted on Norwegian territory affect Norwegian's environmental rights, then the state is responsible for that effect under the constitution.
1: It was uh, an important relief that uh, they acknowledged that there is a right to a healthy environment that can be heard by the courts. We think that recognition was was extremely important and uh, is also kind of quite widely recognised as the strongest part of the judgment. It's underlining of of of, of, a, of a real right, a right that can be tested in court, uh, and and then went on to to this U-turn that that the judgment makes from recognising the right to healthy environment and the right to defend that right in court, to also recognizing that that the state has positive and negative duties as a result of the right, to basically undermine the right by a number of strange arguments. And and he also goes on to argue that that emissions from petroleum production are so small compared to the global climate problem, therefore it is not necessarily a right that can be upheld, which also goes Counter to the general principles about common but differentiated responsibilities and the need for every nation to take as much responsibility as they can, so I think both of those arguments are quite weak and not really holding up in critical assessment, and uh, has also received quite a lot of criticism from uh, several uh, important legal scholars in Norway, uh, labeling this as 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 an absurd, which which I think highlights also the, the value of putting these sort of questions through Legal process because arguments have
2: to be made. Greenpeace and those that are a part of the lawsuit acknowledge that, in addition to the recognition of Article 112 as a legal right, the biggest impacts of the case have been in providing scrutiny over state decisions that infringe upon obligations set internationally and on the public consciousness in Norway and elsewhere regarding environmental issues. Externally, the government of Norway has praised the judgment of the Oslo court, but those with knowledge of the situation concede that internally there has been a great deal of attention towards the case than the government is willing to admit. In the drilling licensing round that followed the one that is the subject of this case, the government incorporated many of the arguments from this case into their presentation to argue that the process should be done with greater care, acknowledging that there may not be space for additional fossil fuels extracted within the boundaries set by the Paris Agreement. This was the first time the government's official directorate has used environmental arguments in their presentation on petroleum licensing.
1: Uh, so, so I, I think kind of the case and the discussions around the case has made the debate about new fossil fuels versus climate commitments clearer in Norway than it has been before. We are seeing a new type of thinking in several circles and we have seen several polls. Uh, in Norway, showing that uh, a majority of the, of the public agrees we should limit oil extraction to combat climate change. Uh, and that has, not, that has not happened before. And I think the court case, with all its sort of principled elements, uh, has at least one important factor to help that shift happen. Norwegians in general are being more sceptical to continued oil expansion. And the debate is in a way getting sort of a bit more polarised because it's more open but, uh, but I think the discussion around that sort of the court case has facilitated has, has contributed in the right direction,
3: absolutely.
2: Following the ruling of the District Court, Greenpeace and its co-claimants had four weeks to decide on whether to appeal the ruling, and announced their intention to do so in early February. Under Norway's system of adjudication procedure, the claimants could request a direct transfer from the District Court to the Supreme Court of Norway on the basis of the urgency of the issue in this case and in involving constitutional interpretation. In its response to the appeal, the government argued forcefully against the Supreme Court accepting the case directly, and stressed the importance for the case to make its way first to the Court of Appeals. Appeal. Just last month, the Supreme Court indicated its refusal to hear a direct appeal, as in their view, the case did not meet the criteria for the expedited appeals process. Greenpeace has indicated its intention to follow through at the Court of Appeal, but unfortunately for them, the current waiting time is approximately two years, a time during which the Norwegian state can continue on with its issuing of oil drilling licenses in the Arctic. The appeal centers primarily on two issues, that the district court's judgment was based on a wrong understanding of the facts and an incorrect application of the law. In terms of the wrong understanding of the facts, the appeal alleges that the district court judge erred in his understanding of the global carbon budget and the existing gap between fossil fuel resources that have already been discovered and extracted and the limit set in the Paris Agreement that will not be reached if further resources are extracted. The parties allege that the judge also incorrectly applied the law by failing to include emissions from the exported petroleum resources from Norway in the assessment of environmental rights of Norwegians. In their view, there is no climate difference between that burned inside or out of Norway, and both affect Norwegians' environmental rights equally. Both of these errors are instrumental in recognizing Article 112 as an enforceable right, consistent with the ruling itself in defining it as such.
1: If it gives real rights to a healthy environment as the judge argued in the first half of his judgment then that right must also be towards global environmental problems not only sort of small national ones or small local and that requires also that there is a global scope on the impacts And the consequences and the responsibility from decisions and activities in norway towards those problems the judgment says that and also the sort of pre-works of the paragraph mentions climate change as one area which be covered by the paragraph and by the right it sets out if climate change is covered then of course all activities with significant impact on the global climate need to be regulated or covered by the law so that's sort of narrow geographical focus on what is environmental damage uh, doesn't fit with the scale of, of, of global environmental problems.
2: We set out in today's episode to better understand the inherent challenges of an increasing number of climate litigation cases being pursued in domestic courts to hold authorities accountable for their environmental obligations. Through the ongoing case between Greenpeace and Norway and the arguments advanced by the judgment of the Oslo District Court, we can identify perhaps three central issues that are illustrative of the unique challenges facing climate litigation as a new avenue for challenging environmentally deleterious decisions and the difficult position courts face in. being asked to be the adjudicator of such claims for environmental rights. The first is the argument that potentially environmentally harmful decisions should be permitted because there will always be an opportunity to carry out a review at a later stage. Acceptance of such an argument by a court makes it nearly impossible for parties to restrict the decision on the basis of an inadequate or flawed assessment. If there is always an opportunity for later reassessment, then it cannot be said that any assessment completed in justifying the action was deficient. But shouldn't the standard be set higher to ensure that actions are not pursued wastefully, only to be stopped at a later time? Surely it is in the government's interest and the common good of the people to pursue actions that have clearly defined benefits, be it economic, social, or otherwise, before they are undertaken.
1: So, so they're systematically arguing that things might have been looked at before or might be looked at after and, and, and then the full assessment would have been done, which is also a technique to evade responsibility and, and just drive the process forward without any full assessment at, at, at reasonable times. What we're quite quite disappointed with is in the judgment and and in particular the economic argument that we presented quite forcefully that the economic uh, analysis of the licensing decision was clearly very, very weak and incomplete and full of grave mistakes which presented the parliament with incomplete and misleading information about the profitability of a licensing decision so so this fragmentation was just going on and on and uh, what what the court failed to to see was, was also that that the licensing decision gives oil companies a right to explore and a right to to harvest the resources underground uh, as long as they can do it in a sort of environmentally proper way to be decided later but there are no climate change considerations that will happen later. So so the licensing decision is a big decision where the state gives away ownership and they cannot really take them back.
2: The second is the argument made that debates over whether the government is effectively meeting their environmental obligations belong in parliament and not in the hands of judges. Such an argument is prominent in the submission of the government of Norway in this case and in many other challenges over state actions, but arguably climate change litigation reflects a conflict over the interests between two parties, the state and its citizens, that ought to be closely aligned, and if the state is viewed as acting against the interests and well-being of its citizens in the decisions it takes, then shouldn't national courts of that state be precisely the location where such conflicts are adjudicated?
1: First, I say that these, this is an issue that belongs in court because of the individual rights to health environment. And then further down, the judgment undermines that position by, by, by trying to argue that complicated decisions like oil licensing sits better in a parliament because there's so much back and forth, which I think is fundamentally wrong because, of course, if policymakers had been able to adopt climate change policies that takes us to the Paris Agreement goals, then it would be absolutely fine. We would not discuss climate and oil in the courts. But since policymakers are not able to meet their high global standards, and at the same time continue to allow projects that takes us in the opposite direction, then there is an increasing role for courts to hold politicians accountable and I think kind of that role of the courts is extremely important, and courts need to team up and fill the gap between uh, between between the, the high ambitions and and the, and, the, and the practical policies. <laughs>
2: And lastly, it is the fragmented legal approach to climate change which fundamentally diverges from the scientific approach to climate change. The scientific consensus on climate change issues considers the globe as a single unit, viewing climate change impacts as an urgent global phenomenon with long-term implications for all people in all countries. However, repeatedly we witness courts taking a fragmented approach by separating consequential environmental harm occurring incrementally or in an area close to where a decision is taken from its cumulative effects or those which manifest elsewhere. Arguably, taking such an approach leads courts to underestimate the actual negative effects of a decision. Notably, such arguments are often employed successfully by parties to escape liability for environmental harm, claiming that they cannot be held accountable when the effects of a decision are such a small contributory part of the broader global problem. Well, let's say that
1: the technique of fragmentation Uh, has been used by the oil industry and also adopted by the court for a long time. Uh, We see the same pattern in the judgment, where the judge is systematically fragmenting climate change impacts of uh, new petroleum production or licensing uh, by saying, you know, (laughs) these fields are not so big compared to the global climate change emissions. These emissions will happen in Norway. These emissions will be exported. We take them out. And by doing that, the overall environmental footprint of the decision to open up new licenses is fragmented into bits and pieces that that one by one can be argued to be too small to really be a breach of the constitutional rights to a health environment. So I think on this Logic of fragmentation to evade responsibility is something that must be tackled, and courts can do it if they're brave enough.
2: As Greenpeace's case moves forward to the legal process, it is undeniable that raising such issues in the court has had positive effects in terms of visibility for environmental issues and new avenues for asserting environmental rights. Of course, an ultimately favourable decision in this case may serve as further inspiration and justification for challenges currently underway and those that arise in the future. Similarly, explicit environmental rights provisions as Norway's are enshrined in nearly 90 constitutions, and national courts in more than 50 of those countries have enforced national environmental laws on the state when called upon to do so. According to a database of active climate litigation, numerous cases are currently ongoing on every continent, with the exception of Antarctica.
1: Uh, what I hope is kind of regardless of a, of a win or, or loss in this case, is that is that uh, this can be uh, an inspiration for others to continue to sort of take their constitutions and environmental laws in their countries seriously. And we are super proud that we have managed to lift this issue climate issue into Norwegian courts. Um, if we win it would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, but if even if we lose, I think we have we have shown that that there are so many weak spots and so many issues to be criticized uh, and that the courts uh, are a quite good arena uh, for that with the sort of structured and principled approach to uh, to something that is normally quite muddled in, uh, in short-term political
2: considerations. NOMA's Phone is a production of law students in Tilburg University's Global Law Program. This episode was produced, edited, and narrated by me, Benjamin Wiles. Research help was provided by fellow Global Law students Annie Luoma and Elisa Harvelatti. Thank you to Professor Benjamin Richardson and Professor Anja Newman for your insightful contributions and discussions for this episode. A special thank you to Mr. Charles Glalson, head of Greenpeace Nordic, for taking time to speak with us about his ongoing legal challenge. If you'd like to support Greenpeace in their efforts in this case, or to follow the updates as the case progresses, visit their website at www.savethearctic.org. And thank you for listening. We here at Nomos Phone will be following this case closely as it progresses, and depending on the progress and the outcome, hope to bring you a later case note to update you on any major developments. Also, be sure to check out our website at www.nomosphone.com or our SoundCloud page to get the latest on our episode releases. Watch out for new episodes coming very soon, and if you like what we do, please leave us a review on our iTunes page, as it really helps to get the word out to others about what we do here. Until next time.